I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Gospel, according to John, John chapter 19. I want to read in your hearing verse 28 to verse 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in parentheses, John says, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can assemble as your people this Lord's Day morning to Look into your word, especially these very significant portions of scripture that instruct us about your son and his dying for us. We pray that you would meet with us and teach us from your word. We think of those who are not with us this morning, and we think particularly of Allison, and we would remember her in prayer as she's gone to see the doctor at the urgent care. We pray that there would be a correct diagnosis of what is troubling her, and that there would be an effective remedy that would be provided. Be with her, encourage her, and comfort her with your presence and spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we left our exposition of John 19, last Lord's Day, I told you I had five points about the crucifixion narrative that John gives to us and points of the narrative that culminate great themes that he has already enunciated and dwelt upon in the earlier parts of the book of John. And so there's a sense in which there's a rich theology that undergirds everything that John tells us about the crucifixion of our Lord. Now, this is a brief account. It's the briefest of the accounts we find in the Gospels. It's a very Christocentric account. And it's an account that, and it is an account that underscores, as we saw last week, that in every single thing that occurs, Jesus maintains his full authority and control over all things. From the very point of his going out, bearing his own cross, to the point in which at death, it's he himself who gives up his spirit. Jesus is acting as the chief actor of the, of, of, of the narrative. It's not what's being done to him, it's what he is doing, willingly, self-consciously, to achieve our redemption, to render the obedience to the Father in this mission the Father sent him to do in coming to a lost and needy world to bring eternal salvation through his death and resurrection. And also with respect to this narrative, we see that the theme that we find throughout John's Gospel 
of Jesus' regal identity is again brought into the forefront. It's very pronounced, even in the matter of the inscription, the titulus that was placed above the cross, in which the crime of the one being crucified was to be stated. What is Jesus' crime? Well, it's that he's Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Even though that meant something to Pilate that God never meant it to mean, it meant something to the people of Israel that they got really offended at. No, say he said he was the king. But God says, no, it's going to stand. Pilate says it's going to stand that he is king of the Jews. Even in his death, he has not lost his regal identity. And then I mentioned last week also his fruit-bearing ministry. Jesus spoke of himself as the gardener. I'm sorry, as the true vine, the father being the gardener. And um, fruits to be born for God's glory among God's people. And we see how it begins to occur, even in the statements that John gives us in this narrative, with respect to things we saw in the dividing of the garments. Um, expressive of the fact that he gives up everything that others would possess things they never had before even in this matter of garments that are given it goes back to the psalms in which the psalmist speaks um, to the issue of uh, the way in which his life and his sufferings again bear fruit uh, for God's glory and seen in the very way in which Jesus even has the disposition of his own garments, that that is true. And then also, I think there's something to be said for the fact in this new relationship that Mary is now to sustain to John, both in the sense that Mary is a, is a widow woman and losing her son. She has other children, yes, but she's placed in the hands of one of Jesus' disciples, the disciple whom he loved, who was standing nearby, um, she's cared for, she's being provided for, but also John's being provided for. I think there are some things you could actually see in the gospel narratives with regard to some of the deficiencies in John's own mother. There's a reason these children were sons of thunder. I think mom was a bit of a, a woman of thunder. And she came to Jesus and said, make my children, my sons, to be the important uh, big shots in your kingdom, one to see seated at your right hand and upon the other upon your left when you enter into your kingdom. And, and John needed a woman like Mary, a woman whose humility is so demonstrated in the Magnificat that we read from Luke chapter 2, of viewing herself as the handmaid of the Lord. She's a servant, and John needed that kind of a woman uh, to look to, to demonstrate the reality of um, uh, what the grace of God brings. And I really think, you know, sort of calling, uh, remember those of the brothers that said, shall we not, uh, uh, shall we not uh, command thunder to come down upon the heads of the Samaritans? Um, and this very man becomes, as we see at the end of his life, a man noted for his letters of love. Um, and even church history says that he was the man who um, was constantly encouraging people to love one another. But love was the hallmark of John's life. It was the hallmark of his ministry. And I wonder if not a little bit of that was gotten from his fact that there was a new relationship. He comes to sustain to a woman who's a mother in Israel and becomes a spiritual mentor and an example to his faith. 
And so what I'm saying to you is that in Jesus' death, stuff is going on that speaks to the reality of new relationships. It speaks to the reality of the new creation. It speaks to the reality of new blessings being given to the people of God through his death. And even in the way John structures the, the narrative of the death, those things come out in some measure of clarity, at least to me. I said to you last week, I had two other things I wasn't going to get to, but now I have three things I'm not going to get to. Two of them I'm going to get to, God willing, this morning, uh, but not the third. I mentioned last week that Jesus' death is being presented by John in this narrative in terms of the theme of the fulfillment of the scriptures. And we're going to look at that this morning. But there's another thing that I think is here in these words. And again, we have to go to the Old Testament to see how this is. Uh, this does play out, but that's okay. We're going to do that this morning. To see that this death is presented in terms of a substitutionary sacrifice that is given unto God. And we're going to look at that. And God willing, next week we'll take up the final theme, which is the theme of his victory. Let's begin with the fact that John's presentation of his crucifixion narrative brings to the fore the theme of the fulfillment of the scriptures. Again, the passage itself, in the words of verse 28, tells us that after this, after Jesus had committed his mother to John's care and John to his mother's care, that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then in parentheses, to fulfill the scripture. And then the words, I thirst. Something that comes from the 69th Psalm. And so this is done, we're told, to fulfill the scripture. It's not the only time we're told in the narrative that something happened to fulfill the scriptures. In verse 24, the matter of the disposition of Jesus' garments so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, that is, the seamless garment, the outer garment, I'm sorry, the inner garment, the seamless garment, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John tells us, This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22. So these two Psalms are quoted directly in this narrative. And it shouldn't be a strange thing in our minds because in a real sense throughout the length and breadth of John's gospel, every step of the way, the gospel writer emphasizes the theme that Jesus has not only come from the Father, being the sent one who's come into the world, but he's also come being sent into the world in accordance with the scriptures. John 5 and verse 39, Jesus comments upon the way in which the Jewish leaders were eager to read and study every nuance, every jot and tittle of the scriptures, every single letter and parts of letters. When he says, you search the scriptures and you do it diligently and you do it energetically and you do it continually. Why? Because you think that in them, that, in the, that is in the scriptures, you have eternal life. Like, how much of the Bible can you read? Well, that's what your eternal salvation is going to depend upon. We have to ask ourselves, why do we read the Bible? Do we think that much reading is going to gain us brownie points with God? Do we think that much reading is just going to enable us to have a great deal of wisdom to be spiritual people? 
You know, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, it's love that builds up. You know, you can have a lot of knowledge and be a pretty proud individual. You can be a pretty uh, self-absorbed person with a whole lot of biblical knowledge. Not everybody with a great deal of biblical knowledge is a genuine uh, example of godliness and faithfulness. Not at all. In fact, it's appalling to see all the preachers that get carted off to prison in our country today and to be charged with bilking the church of money to defrauding and uh, pilfering from the church funds. How many preachers uh, get uh, caught in uh, immoral relationships and are having to be disciplined by their churches and denominations and cast forth from the ministry and how many have gone to prison with stuff that was on their computer that's plain old illegal and wretched and miserable things that they consume as part of um, you know, how much time they spend looking at kiddie porn rather than reading the prophet Isaiah I don't know but they're, they're in prison hopefully start to read Isaiah start to put away this nonsense this horrific things that people today do as preachers, teachers, people of knowledge they're not exempted from the sins that plague a fallen world and a lot of times they have too much time on their hands that they're more prone to engage in many of those kinds of sins so knowledge is not a preservation of sin, of sinning why do you read the Bible? I think the answer should be because you want to know God you want to know Jesus you read the Bible to Consider the great things that God's made known for your soul's welfare and well-being, that you would have a broadening, deepening, more varied, more, more energetic relationship with the God of heaven and earth. That's where scripture knowledge ought to lead us. It ought to lead us to the throne of his glory. It ought to lead us humble before him. It ought to lead us into deeper measures of, of a relationship with the God who is living and true. The Pharisees knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for you think in them you have eternal life. And then he tells them, these are they that testify of me. And you will not come to me, that you might have life. You're not going to get life in the page. You're not going to get life in the words. You're not going to get life in the text. You get life in where the text should lead you. The text should lead you to Christ. These are they that testify of me. We must come to him through the text. Learn of him through the text. Love him through the text. Rejoice in him through the text. Appreciate him in the light of what's made known about him in the text of the Bible. Again and again, John tells us that things happened to Jesus and things were said about Jesus that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I'll give you 13, 18. You can look it up on your own. I'll give you 17, 12. Many others are in the text of John's gospel. It's from the scriptures of the law and the prophets. It's in the scriptures of the Old Testament that Jesus showed his disciples. Remember on the road to Emmaus? And later on with the eleven, all the things concerning himself, that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. And so our study of the Old Testament is not because of some quest. 
for knowledge, of information about the ancient world. It's a quest for the knowledge of Christ. We're to be whole Bible Christians because we see Jesus in the whole of our Bibles. Now that doesn't mean we spiritualize the text, but that we see the text, every text, as part of the story that anticipates Jesus, that speaks of Jesus, that prophesies his coming, that tells us of his sufferings and of his subsequent glory. It's an interesting thing that the gospel writers all emphasize that these happen, these things happen to fulfill the words of the Old Testament. But I'm always amazed that Isaiah 53 is never one they, they quote. Maybe that's too obvious a passage that you don't need to had much explanation to see Jesus. It's a clear Christological text. Jesus is there. Maybe they want to emphasize other texts that are not quite so obvious. But you do see in the crucifixion narrative a decided theme of scripture fulfillment right on the face of the things that John presents. But as I said, there's another theme that I didn't think about last week, I didn't consider. And because it's a theme that arises out of a passage in the Gospel, that I think we give a bit short shrift to, perhaps. We overlook it in some ways. I'm thinking especially in the fact that it's a pattern of, of life in many places, in many churches, uh, particularly around the time of the lead-up to Good Friday and Easter, the preachers preach and people write books on the subject of the seven last sayings of Jesus. And you all know what those sayings are, don't you? And I wonder if we'd ask you if we could do it in the order of which they seem at least to be given. But no one gospel has all seven of them. In fact, Matthew and Mark just have one. Matthew and Mark have, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? From Psalm 22. Luke has three others, not in Matthew and Mark, and not in John. And that's the word where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And when he said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then when he gave up the spirit, he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit, which was a quote from Psalm 31. So Luke gives us three And those three are really good ones, aren't they? Those are the more memorable ones. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Today you'll be with me in paradise, and into your hands I commit my spirit. Those all scintillate. Those are really great, great, great statements. Well, John gives us three of his own. And one of them we looked at last week, where he says to his mother, Behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Um, caring for his mother. And uh, that doesn't quite uh, charge us up, I think, as much as some of those other ones I've just quoted. Um, The one in which concludes this passage, which is, it is finished. That's one that Christians rejoice in. 
the cry of triumph and victory, accomplishment and achievement that Jesus gives at the end of his sufferings, it has been accomplished, is certainly something that we make much of, and rightly so. Then we have I thirst. Then we have I thirst. Am I the only one that thinks that sort of kind of pales in exist? Anyway, is any, am I the only one that thinks that I thirst is uh, kind of pales in comparison to Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, or into your hands I commit my spirit, or today you will be with me in paradise, or it has been accomplished. I mean, what do you make of I thirst? Jesus was dehydrated. Of course he'd be dehydrated. Anybody that gets crucified would be dehydrated under the hot Mediterranean sun. You would think that would be obvious. And it's just an expression of his thirst. What's the big deal about that? Maybe we can say, well, it teaches Jesus true humanity. And a lot of people point to that. And of course it's true that Jesus thirsts. As any man who is in that position would also be dehydrated and would thirst. But you see, there seems to be something that's more in the passage. For John just doesn't say, I, Jesus said, I thirst. In fact, the way he says it is of great significance. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and before you get to what he said, before you get to, I thirst, that's what he said, John puts in this parenthetical statement to fulfill the scripture. In other words, John's saying, take note. He's saying, don't pass over this. He's saying, this is not as unimportant as you think. This is to fulfill the scripture. Jesus said, I thirst. What do you make of that? Well, let me suggest that first of all, we have to ask what scripture is it that Jesus is fulfilling? And then I would suggest it would be a wise thing, once we determine what the scripture is, to go back to that scripture and see what the significance of that scripture is. You see, the point of Old Testament quotations in the New Testament is not just to take this limited thing, I thirst, and, well, John's kind of cutting it out of actually the passage of Psalm 69, sticking it in his narrative, and that's all that needs to be said. No, you've got to go back to the context and see why is it that John is quoting it in this way, and what is it about Psalm 69 that might have to do with the death of Jesus? And the fact is, folks, that Psalm 69 is one of the most often quoted passages in the Old Testament with reference to Jesus. In fact, not only is it most often quoted, but more parts of it are quoted. Section after section come into view in New Testament quotations. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he has ascended on high, let captivity captive, giving gifts unto men. At least I'm not mistaken, that's either Psalm 69 or Psalm 68. But it's one of the two. <laughs> and, but in Psalm 69, you have in verse 9, something John previously quoted in chapter 2. When Jesus went into the temple and he cast out the money changers and he cleansed the temple... And John says the disciples remembered it was said that zeal for your house has consumed me. 
It's right there in verse 9. Psalm 69 and verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And then John adds to that, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And that's something Paul quotes in Romans chapter 15. When he speaks about Jesus, who didn't come to please himself. He didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve. He came to have the reproaches of others who reproached God and deserved penalty and judgment for their reproaches of God. That judgment didn't fall upon the ones who deserve the punishment, but it falls upon Jesus. See, the whole context is, this is a psalm of David. David was the king. And David is, indwell, is, is, is reigning in a time, and the, the descendants of David, the kings of Judah, in times when it was, yes, important that the king would walk in righteousness, that would determine how the people would either receive the blessings or the curses of the covenant. But the simple reality was that in many reigns of Davidic kings, there was judgment that came upon the king because of the transgressions of the people. The king would be made to suffer. Now David a lot of times suffered for his own transgressions and crimes. That's well known. But yet there are times in which David found himself in deep, deep waters. That's where this begins. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. Verses 1 and 2 where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The floods have swept over me. There's the picture of a suffering king. The suffering king that's of David. This is a David psalm. This has to do with the Davidic kingship. And the Davidic king is made to suffer. But he suffers reproach himself for the sake of God. In verse 7, for your sake I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've done it in faithfulness to the God I love and serve. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. But I've continued on with a principled commitment to serve, to have a zealous commitment to the house of God. And then in the face of his integrity, serving God, being zealous for God's house, being zealous for the reign of God in God's world, he then experiences the reproaches of those who have reproached you. They've fallen on me. They should have fallen on them, but they don't. They fell upon the Davidic king. He bears in himself the crimes of the people for which he comes to suffer. That's the place that Jesus is in. The reproaches of those that have reproached God have fallen not upon the transgressors, but he was wounded for our transgression. You see, John didn't need to quote Isaiah 53 to have Isaiah 53's content really here. Because we have the one who deserved much better than he got. Because he was the one who was the holy, harmless son of God. Yet he suffers for the transgressions of others. He's brought into this place of suffering, not for crimes that he had committed, but for the crimes that others had committed. He fulfills the scriptures in bearing in his own body the judgment for reproaches of sinners who have reproached the living and true God, who have blasphemed, who have 
forsaken him, who have been unfaithful to him, who have violated God's will and God's ways. Our sins have fell upon him. And he's fulfilling the scriptures that say, I thirst. I thirst. That's in Psalm 69 and verse 21. Psalm 69 and verse 21. They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. He suffers, not for his own crimes, but he suffers at the hands of people that seek his hurt and his destruction in order to make atonement for others. And again, this is something that we find again and again repeated in John's Gospel. This is John's understanding of Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world, that he's the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Not for crimes he's done, but for the other, for others. He dies for others. He dies as the sinner's substitute. But what's the importance of this matter of his thirsting? Well, simply, if you read it in the light of John's Gospel, it's the most incredulous, it's the most absurd, it's the most, how in the world did we come to this? That you can imagine. Because who is it who's saying, I thirst? What's well, one of John mentions thirsted at another occasion. He doesn't actually say he thirsted, but he says he went to a well in Samaria. And at Jacob's well in John chapter 4, Jesus asks the woman who's come out to get water from this well. He says to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, this is the Savior of the world. He's coming to bring the world to the knowledge of God. He answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Jesus claims to be the source of living water. Not stagnant water, but living water. A living water that's spoken of in the words of verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How is it that one who offered springs of water welling up to eternal life would ever come to the place of saying, I thirst, I thirst. The one who gives living water to others is upon the cross thirsting. Chapter 7 of John's Gospel, we see Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles on the great day of the feast, the last day. There was a water ritual the Jews did on that day. And Jesus, in the face of that, he stood up and cries out, If anyone thirst, you're doing your little water ritual thinking that's going to give all the cessation of thirst to your mind and heart and soul? No, no. 
If you still thirst, come to me. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, again, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it's not so much out of the heart of the person, it's out of the heart of the giver. It's Jesus who's the source of this living water. It's Jesus who is the source of the water that springs up to eternal life. Here the source of living water is thirsting upon the cross. See, it's a different kind of thirst that's being addressed here. There's not just the thirst of the body. Jesus said, you're going to take care of that and satisfy that, but you're just going to thirst again. But there's a kind of thirst that can only be met by what Jesus has come into the world to bring, what Jesus has come into the world to give. And you see, that's the thirsting heart that thirsts for the reason for which we've been created, which is to know God, to fellowship with God, to enjoy in the presence of God the fullness of his blessings and the fullness of the joys of his presence and his provisions. Remember what the description of the Garden of Eden was like? I'd imagine if you took a 21st century Christian and you were able to transport him back to the Garden of Eden, and we see sights there that would just amaze us and beguile us and attract us, and we'd probably come home reporting upon the things that our eyes beheld and the things that we saw. And I rather think that for the 21st century Christian, the things we'd probably be excited about would be the arboreal splendors, you know, the, the trees, the flowers, the beauty of a garden that God himself planted and placed man in. We say, wow, what trees, what trees, what beauty, amazing. Perhaps some of us would say, hey, look, there's not only trees there, but the Bible also speaks about these jewels and precious stones that were there. They come back saying, man, oh man, you shouldn't have seen it. These jewels and precious stones that were in the Garden of Eden. Tremendous, amazing. But you know, if you took a first century Jew, or anyone really that lived in the ancient world in what's called the Fertile Crescent or in Mesopotamia and all the areas in the biblical of the biblical world. You know what they would come back to report? It wouldn't be so much about trees. They'd mention it. There wouldn't be so much about precious stones. Yeah, they'd talk about that. But you know what would be the amazing thing that was? There was water. Water. Water that came out from Eden. Water that was so great it made four divisions that turned into four great rivers, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and two others that aren't so well known. But the point is, in a climate where you are dependent upon water, where so much of life was spent searching for places of water, you read about it in the Bible, they went from place to place, digging wells. Why? Water was precious. You need water to live. Water determined so much about life in the ancient world, how much time you spent looking for it, how much time you spent digging for it, how much time you spent preserving it, putting it into jars. Water was the essential thing. God placed man in an environment where that need was clearly met. But not just the need for the water that would feed the body. 
but the joy of his presence, the wonder that presents the reality of a God with whom you are at peace with, a God who is walking with you, and you are walking before him. The satiation of the spiritual hunger and the spiritual thirst of the soul that can be met only in the living and the true God. And Jesus upon the cross instead of having his heart and mind and soul satiated with the fullness of God, he experienced neediness. He experienced thirst. Thirst that he should never have experienced. He was experiencing that redemptively. He was experiencing that substitutionally. He was experiencing that because the reproaches of those that reproached God fell on him. He received the penalty. He experienced the neediness. It's one of the things that the Old Testament said to the Jews with respect to the curses of the covenant of people that were unfaithful before God is they would experience drought. Deuteronomy 28, verse 23, God says the heavens over you the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Imagine that, the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Heaven won't smile on you with water. Heaven won't smile on you with rain and fruitful seasons. There'll be dust and powder and dried land. Again, the blessings, the blessed, the blessed man or woman is pictured in Psalm 1 as, as what? Like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Bear fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither. Jeremiah does the same image. The blessed person is the person whom God blesses with the abundance of water. And the cursed are like a shrub in the desert. A shrub in the desert. We'll not see when good comes. Jesus suffers thirst. He suffers God abandonment for us. The supply of constant refreshment from the hand of God, from his presence, the comforts, the delights are withdrawn as the Son of God bears away the sin of the world as the substitute for sinners, bears the reproaches of those who reproached God. Sour wine was a common drink that was used by laborers and soldiers to refresh thirst, but it, it wouldn't last long. It'd be a temporary thing. But Jesus, knew, he knew this was this was enough. He bore the sins of men. He took the judgment sin deserved. And it's at that point when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That which should have refreshed him and buoyed his spirits, no, no, he had accomplished the work. He had taken the penalty. He had discharged justice in its fullness. It is finished. And he bowed his head 
and gave up the spirit. Just one other thing that's in the text. I didn't really know what to make much of it. It's the fact that the sour wine was placed on a hyssop branch and held to his mouth. And hyssop branches just can't really do that. I mean, it had to be put on something else, maybe the javelin of a soldier or something like that. Or maybe the fact that it was another kind of reed, but hyssop is put there by John to highlight the Passover implications of the death of Jesus. Because remember, it was the hyssop in which the blood of the lamb was taken and was put on the lintels and the, and, and of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the doors and of, of, the, of the dwellings of the, of the Israelites. And it may well be that that's what's being presented here. It's also the fact that sour wine may relate in some way to the Jesus turning water into wine. I mean, that's a possibility. I don't know what to make of it all. I think there's rich symbolism here that I haven't even been able to to pierce its its profundity. It's it's so it's so amazing and wondrous. But this much is clear: John does see Jesus as the substitution for us. He sees Jesus as the one who thirsts for us. Though he gives living water, he experienced the curse upon the cross for our sins and discharged God's will for him and for us in its fullness. That's a joy to consider. That's a wonder to consider that Jesus bore away our sins. He bore away our guilt. He took the penalty our sins deserved And through his stripes we are healed. Through his death we achieve again the fullness of God's fellowship and presence and joy. And we receive that living water that he promised to all who believe in his name that we will have a little bit of a taste of Eden here upon this earth, in this world, until it culminates in the blessings of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, there's probably a lot more to say about this, but I'm not saying it to you this morning. I hope this is sufficient to give some measure of comfort and joy and praise to our hearts towards our Savior. Let's go to him as we look to him together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful for what he endured for us, that he is the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world, that he is the Good Shepherd who gave up his life for the sheep, We are thankful that it was for our crimes he was put into that place of suffering and death that we would never be ourselves ever placed under the curse again. But to us who believe there is no condemnation, for us who believe there is the joy of life eternal, there is the joy of a relationship with you in which there will be never ceasing supplies of every needed thing. We're thankful that there is that reality of a dwelling with the God of heaven that meets all of our needs, not physical, yes, but spiritual, more importantly, that the needs of a thirsty heart and soul, the needs of having questions that go unanswered and reasons for living that just never seem to lead us to any certainty, that we come to that place of joy unspeakable and full of glory as we look upon your Son who thirsted for us that we might know the blessedness of that eternal fountain of water that never ceases and that springs up to everlasting life. Receive our praise and our thanksgiving as we come before your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.